This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Well, welcome everybody. You can see I'm not at all excited at all. <laughs> uh, welcome, first of all, to the big last event of what's been the most successful book festival yet. This is the last main event and you're at it. So that's uh, very exciting. Tickets have been at a record level. And so we have to thank uh, sponsors, The Guardian, for an incredible festival. I hope you've been to all kinds of events and enjoyed as much of it as you possibly can. So we should give a great big round of applause for the festival itself. It's been great. <laughs> And far be it for me to say, but maybe we've saved the best for last, because, ladies and gentlemen, we have with us the amazing Sarah Waters, whose new book, The Paying Guests, is just about to be published. I think it's on sale tonight, mm -hmm. uh, so you'll be the first to get hold of it. And we have so many things to talk to Sarah about tonight, which you have a chance to do uh, once we've had a bit of a chat. And after the event, of course, Sarah will be signing her books next door. I hope everyone's mobile phone is turned off. That's the first bit of housekeeping, yes, because if... It goes off, I will come and answer it for you. <laughs> Sarah, I'm sorry I'm so excited, but that's because ever since the first thing that you've written, I have read every single word that you have written uh, faithfully. Because quite frankly, if you wrote an entire book about painting a bookshelf, I would read it. But thankfully, that's not what this one is about. Uh, and I've struggled to try and think of the way to describe it because even reviewers have struggled. Is it a thriller? Is it a love story? Is it what? Can I ask you how you describe it? Oh, my goodness. It's, it's actually quite hard to describe your own book. When I was working on it, people would say, what's the new book like? What's the new book about? And I would say, it's a lesbian love story that veers into melodrama. I've been hoisted by my own guitar because actually some reviews have called it melodrama. But um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a love story that, um, that in, in the middle of which something very dramatic happens and it becomes a very complicated sort of moral story really doesn't it I think it becomes incredibly moral um, and it's also very gripping I mean you know as soon as you pick up a Sarah Waters uh, book and uh, two uh, lodgers move into a middle-class mother and daughter's house that it's not going to be straightforward <laughs> is it? So, so, I mean, I'm guessing this is not going to come out well but um, it's about so much more it's uh, I mean let's talk about the plot it's set in 1922 just yeah. after uh, the war and uh, the class system is in disarray. It's fair enough to say that society is, is wobbly and people are trying to come to terms with uh, the new England that they've come back to. Um, and that's, that's a very powerful setting. Yes, indeed it is. There was an awful lot going on. I mean, much more than I um, anticipated, really. It's, you know, when I, I, every time I've started a book... Um, I've, it's, it's happened in different ways that what's led me to the particular period. So with the Victorian, the three first novels all set in the 19th century, I, I already knew quite a lot about, about the Victorians. You know, that's what took me there. I wanted to sort of tell some of the stories that I felt weren't, weren't getting told or stories that I wanted to be there, really. I was happy to kind of make up. Um, and then with the 40s, when I moved to the 1940s, um, I, had a, I knew a bit about, say, women's lives during the Second World War and after it. I knew enough to take me there with sort of confidence about the sort of story I might tell. And that, that led then to The Little Stranger, the next one. But with this book, I must admit, I didn't know much about the 20s at all. And I went there, you know, ready to find out more. And I'd really un sort of underestimated how much I'd have to engage with the war, especially talking about the early 20s. I think... 
you know, lots of our stereotypes of the 20s come from the later part of the period, um, all that kind of dancing and um, high society stuff. But the first part of the decade, it was only, you know, 1922, the war had only been over for four years. Lots of servicemen didn't actually return from the war until 1919 or even later than that. They were demobbed very slowly. So it was, as you say, a society in transition, and that's one of the things that, that really interested me about it, really. The, the thing that's always impressed me about your research, though, is that you can tell authors, you know, the, the, the whiff of the lamplight cliche, you can tell when the research is over come them and uh, they're just desperate to get in every detail. Yours never leaps out like that. It's so entirely natural, right down to the dialogue. And that really fascinated me. How could you possibly have a grasp of 1920s dialogue so correctly? I mean, we all know that they'll call each other Mrs. So-and-so and Miss So-and-so. Yeah. But, but apart from that, it's just beautifully nuanced. Well, none of us, none of us knows, actually, we do don't. we? Um, it's, just, it's sort of just beyond living memory, just slipping beyond living memory, the early 20s now. So in that sense, that's a help to me, because really all I ha what I have to do, not all I have to do, but what I have to do is, is find something that, that sounds right, you know. So, I mean, I, I read a lot of novels from the period, and obviously novels, don't, novels aren't real life. They don't, they don't... People in novels don't talk like people in real life would have spoken then any more than they would now. But it's, nevertheless, it's, you know, it gives you a flavour of the, it, the, the feel of the period... Films were no good to me, of course, because they were all silent. Mm. I mean, Philip... <laughs> <laughs> I was watching really hard. He's like, I can't but, uh, stand him. Yelena <laughs> Lamont. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, films, actually, films were very useful in other ways, because, uh, I mean, watching silent movies is... Um, the, the acting... God, talk about melodrama. You know, it's a very different acting style. It belongs to a much older theatrical tradition. It's all sort of flashing eyes. Um, but once I'd sort of tuned into 20s films, there are some wonderful 20s films and with some amazing actors. I mean, Lillian Gish, have you ever seen Lillian Gish cry? Mm -hmm. well, you know, she, nobody can cry like Lillian Gish in a big close-up. Way, way, down, way Down East, isn't it, the film? Yeah. Where she gets trapped on a bit of ice in the end and a bloke has to come and rescue her. It's a fabulous <laughs> film. And they were great, great, big-scale, dramatic movies with often uh, full of orphans, lots of blind orphans in <laughs> 1920s films. Terrible, terrible, awful situations. So, um, I mean, again, rather confounds our ideas, I think, about the 20s. You don't imagine 20s people going to the cinema and watching these kind of traumatic, traumatic um, films about orphans getting lost in medieval Paris and things. Um, but, but no, cinema was no use to me in terms of dialogue. But then I looked at letters and I looked at diaries, which are, you know... Obviously, a very particular belong to a very particular social set. If you're reading Siegfried Sassoon's diaries, which are wonderful, you know they're only going to give you a glimpse of a certain kind of man in a certain kind of class. Arnold Bennett's diaries were wonderful, uh, very chatty. Virginia Woolf's diary is very, very chatty in a completely different kind of way. Catherine Mansfield's letters are marvelous. You know, so again, they all belong to very particular social sets. They're not much use for working class life, say. But uh, they all, they, it all helped, you know, reading that, that kind of thing. And then just, just kind of getting, I don't know, getting a feel for it. And I, I, do, I enjoy writing dialogue, and I enjoy writing dialogue that hopefully 
sounds realistic, if, if not authentic. Well, well there's, there's a modernity to it as well. Particularly, I mean, just to, just to outline the plot, if I may, without giving anything away, because it's about uh, Frances, um, a young woman who's, who we think is very old at the beginning, and we find out that she's you know, not a whiskery spinster at 26. Well, she's an unmarried daughter. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, uh, and then her mother is coming to terms with the death of her two sons and her, and her, and her husband, and two new lodgers move in, the, the barbers, the young, the young couple who we don't quite haven't got quite a handle on when they when they arrive, and it's the mix of class, the Clark class, if you like, moving in to what was seen as an upper middle class that you can already feel the tension building from from the beginning. Um, uh, the, I'm just going to pick you up on one thing you said. You think it's a lesbian love story? I have to. I, that always surprises me. I think it's a love story because um, this is so erotic in pieces. I had to actually put the book down and try and <laughs> think of something disgusting to get my pulse back out. It was Jeremy Clarkson. <laughs> and, then, and then when my heartbeat got back to normal, I could pick it back up again. So it meant, it meant not a jot to me, that, you know, whether it was a lesbian or straight. And to me, it was the class difference that was actually more startling than the gender. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the lesbian thing, yes, of course, this has come up for me all the time over the years. You know, to what extent am I a lesbian writer? Do I identify as a lesbian writer? Is that a good thing to do? Is it a bad thing to do? And, you know, I've always been very happy with, with the label lesbian writer. And, in fact, I've probably done as much as anyone to claim it because it still feels kind of politically important to me to do that. You know, I mean, I came into writing fiction after... Uh, you know, reading a lot of lesbian and gay fiction, there was a sort of explosion of it really in the 90s, in the 80s and 90s, when I was just coming out as a young woman. It was very exciting. And it wasn't all that great, you know, um, the lesbian fiction that was around. It was lesbian, I mean, it just wasn't. There were some standout writers. Jeanette Winterson, obviously, was, was one of them, and she had a big impact on me because she just seemed to come from nowhere and um, to be doing something very ambitious with a, with a very kind of relaxed lesbian agenda to it. It just seemed extraordinary, that. But there was a lot of sort of small press lesbian and gay fiction around. And I would never have written a word of my own without that background of reading. You know, it was those books that inspired me to write. Um, and so I've always felt kind of important to, to hang on to that label. And also because I'm telling, I often tell stories that are specific to their lesbian characters. You know what I mean? It wouldn't, if, if Francis and Lillian were Francis and, you know, Les or something, I mean, the story would be, it wouldn't just, it wouldn't go in, in the same way because there are yep. specific pressures on them. There are specific freedoms they might have in this novel, for example, because of the invisibility, say, that being lesbians in, in a very heterosexual society gives them. So that it's the specificity of their experience that makes me want to just hang on to that label a bit. But, of course, no, it is just ultimately mm. a love story. Yes, because um, The Little Stranger was the, was the only one you deviated yeah. from that, where that, you, you, there was nothing particular, there was no lesbian you know, central character particularly. No. Well, um, I want to talk about that later because I want to focus on this, because I could talk about that for a million years as well, but the, ah, maybe they will. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to get back to sex for a second, <laughs> because regardless, again, you know, of sexual orientation, you're one of the very few writers that can write about sex, and it's really amazing because most people when they do it even some of the greatest writers it's the worst thing you've ever read and you flick they go oh <laughs> yeah, you know, even I have to say great writers like Ian McEwan I have to go I go oh come on Ian <laughs> you wish and then <laughs> don't tell them <laughs> but in 
<laughs> get back to the plot. But um, not, not so with your books. And, you know, erotic writing is an incredible skill in itself. I mean, can I ask you this without being rude? <laughs> Do you get a bit turned on when you're doing it? <laughs> do you have to be? It's like, you don't have to be scared when you're writing horror. Do you have to be turned on when you're you, writing eroticism? You have, to, you have to be, like, there with your characters. You okay. <laughs> Best left. All right, let's get... <laughs> I just had to ask. Of course, the um, awful thing is that you, you, the worry is that... That you're sort of revealing what turns your characters on. You're sort of revealing what turns you on. Not you know? necessarily. So you might... <laughs> Three pearl buttons and a lacy. <laughs> and I've got babies. <laughs> um... <laughs> right, Jeremy Clarkson, Jeremy Clarkson. <laughs> Just talk about sex a bit longer. I mean, the thing is, I don't know how I would be writing a sort of, you know, an, an erotic novel, but the fact is there's not that much sex in this book. There's just a few key scenes, and they are key, and that's why the sex is there, because they're very... It's about two women falling in love, young women, um, you know, and being sort of bowled over by the passion of, of their relationship, and it, and it had to be... It had to feel physically yeah. true and powerful... And, yeah, that's my story. I'm sticking to it anyway. <laughs> Great. I'm going to move on to another part, is the, the, the war part of it, because there's some, there's some terrific, I mean, real profundities in this book, I think, that really moved me. Um, there's, and I, I wonder if I, can, if I can bring them out without giving up too much. Shall we stop me if you think I've, I've gone too far? But, um, for instance, the loss of Francis's two brothers have obviously had a massive effect on both women in very, very different ways. And it's only later on in the book that Francis realises that her irritation with her father was the fact that she hadn't actually appreciated what pain that he must have been through. And that's a real revelation for me. But the very snobby Mrs Playfair says at one point that well, when an event happens, uh, well, of course, all our young men, they're decent young men, and we're lost in the war, so all that we're left with is the riffraff and so on. Gone, our best says, men have yes. gone. And, uh, and that's a, a theme that's repeated later on. And in a way, uh, you do very little to disavow us of that with some hmm. of the characters in here. And I wonder if that was a, a deliberate act as well, because there is no shining example, terrific man. They seem very damaged and very... The men have a hard time in this novel, yeah, they don't really they? Do. They really do, as, as Francis and their mother sort of comment on in the end. Um, they're either dead um, or they, they, they're sort of damaged, as you say, in some way, or they're kind of failing or they're, they're, yeah, they're harmed, actively harmed in the course of the novel. And I hadn't really thought, you know, planned that, but, of course, it was a time, you know, the First World War. Yes, we know that, that women went to France as nurses, went to Malta, as we Britain did, you know, women were on the front line to a certain extent. And of course, the First World War was the first war which in this country people experienced as on the home front. You know, there were air raids. Um, there was this, just the stress, the absolute terrible wearing stress of waiting for news, that sort of thing. It was, a, the whole population experienced it. But of course, it was a very gendered war. It was young, young men, for the most part, being sent off, you know, to fight. Um, and, and women on the whole staying at home. And, um, you know, that was something that, that, that had its impact on the aftermath of the war with a lot of men coming home either physically disabled or mentally scarred or just coming home with a sense of what, what on earth was that all for? What was that, you know, why did we go through that? Coming home perhaps to a, a job that had been lost, um, to a housing shortage, to um, 
to a world in which actually women seemed to have done quite well, and in a sense they were right. You know, women had gained new freedoms during the war. They gained a partial vote at the end of the war, perhaps partly because of the sort of war work. Um, and there was a sort of loosening up of, of mores around gender, for, mainly for women, I think. So it was a very, very tense time and, and a time of great conflict, and that was one of them, this conflict between men and women. And as you say, this whole class thing, I mean, again, it was, as well as being a very gendered war, there was a class dynamic. I mean, this, every, we, we all know this, you know, that, I mean, the officer class... Um, you know, sort of 50% of the officer class went, didn't it? Um, but, of course, in terms of figures, I think for every officer killed in the First World War, there were 20 working-class men killed. So the figures were, you know, it was mainly working-class deaths, but the, the, de the, the devastation proportionately was bigger on a certain class of, of men. Mm -hmm. And that, I hadn't really thought that through. You know, that was something that I found in, in novels of the time. There were a lot of novels that came out around, exactly around 1922 time, dealing with the aftermath of the war and this very disgruntled sense and men trying to fit back in and feeling uncomfortable. And, and there was, at least in those novels, there was a sense that, um, you know, some, for some middle, middle and upper middle class people, there was a resentment that the best men had been lost. And there was a resentment that the officers, you know, upper, upper middle class men had stepped forward at the very start of the war, had signed up, whereas and as, as, of course, did lots of working-class men, but there was also a perception that working-class men had waited until they'd been forced into it by conscription. So, you know, I, hadn't, I just hadn't realised that until I'd started to look into the period. All those sort of currents there, currents of resentment. Yes, well, in fact, I can't, I can't recall whether it's Lillian or Francis, but one of them who snubs a beggar snaps back at me going, well, you women have done very well yes. out of this, haven't you? And he's, he's down in his uppers. And that, and that throws them a little because, of course... They themselves are suffering too, but in a much more silent way. Yes, yes. yes. Um, again, the, the, the modernity of that came back to me again, which again, without giving too much away, when, when another event un, unfolds, and we're talking about feeling of safety at the end of the book, and, and a character says, well, that's just like after the war, I don't feel safe because so much harm was done, and you cannot feel safe in a place when harm was done to get you to that place of safety. And mm. I wondered when you were writing that line if you had current events in your mind, because, of course, that's where we are just now. We are practically in a state of war constantly. Yes, yes. That, again, I hadn't anticipated how, how much um, of the preoccupations of the present I would see already there, you know, in, in the 1920s. And it felt very um, um, familiar to me, a very familiar landscape, and very close to our own. And, of course... You know, internationally, the situation was was very unstable, just as it as it is now. The Paris Peace Conference in 1919. I mean, it was just a chaos. I'm just reading that book by Margaret Macmillan, that wonderful book, The Peacemakers. Peacemakers, yes, mm -hmm. about about the Paris Peace Conference, and it was just this absolute tangle of sort of ethnic rivalries and um, national self-interest. I mean, it was just sort of unbearable, really. And it, and it, of course, it didn't really resolve much at all. And some of those very tensions that were left festering then certainly produced the Second World War and have produced lots of the problems that we're still dealing with globally today. And people were aware of that at the time. You know, yes. people, it was there in your papers. People felt pretty sort of pessimistic um, about, you know, they knew that it would probably be another war in, in a few years' time, which indeed there was. So what had that been, what had the war been for? What had all those lives been lost for? Um, and there's a sort of, another theme is like it was ever thus all the way through the book because even you mentioned the newspapers there there is again an incident where the tabloid intrusion into an event and the, the, and the, and the um, 
the court of public opinion, it's mm. almost like Levison, you know, <laughs> in, yeah. in 1922. Well, this it's, was it's an astonishing. It was an interesting time around the press because, um, you know, literacy had improved in the general population from, from the early part of the century, from the late 19th century onwards, really. Um, people had a bit more leisure time. Um, working conditions had actually improved for a lot of working people. They, the lower middle class, the Clark class, mm. really had expanded. I think between 1911 and 1921, um, a sort of, you know, there'd been sort of a tripling of, of, of working class, pe class people, mainly men, going into sort of salary posts, going into the civil service, you know, white collar jobs, uh, better conditions, earning better uh, money. Um, and so, of course, for the class above that, Frances and her mother's class, the middle and upper middle class, it was a, who'd lost their servants in the war, who'd lost their income and lost their sort of old certainties. It was a very threatening time. And the way to react to that was through snobbery, which is where the whole idea of the Clark class comes from. And, and suburbs, it was a very interesting time around the suburbs. This was a time in which, oh, you know, it was just the last word in, in sort of dreary conformity to belong to the suburbs. Um, the, the Bloomsbury set are very, very snooty about suburbs, much as I love Virginia Woolf, you know. My goodness, <laughs> what a snob. Um, and there's a lot of that around, um, around the suburbs and about the Clark class and who's got Cockney vowels, you know, she meets some um, H.G. Wells and he's got a few Cockney vowels left. <laughs> um, it was a great, I mean, God, any point in British history is a great time for snobbery, but this was a particular time, I think. This, the, uh, the last thing I'll just say again about the, the men, and this before, before we move on, is that there's a real sense of um, claustrophobia within gender that I felt that every man was almost spiv-like and mildly threatening, predatory, but in a really crap way you know, they were, <laughs> the women were so much stronger uh, you think? yes and, and it's it, I find it, I find it it's really unpalatable a lot of it because you, you know even at the party which is not giving anything away that's you know the, the, I felt I felt quite sorry for the male characters because they were they were slimy and oh <laughs> I didn't find them slimy there's not all nice, of them there's I'm a obviously nice man at a party who makes who sort of makes a move on Francis and um, who has a breath like a boy's behind the like beer which I love sorry yeah. that's a beautiful I like sentence him, old years. I feel sorry for him <laughs> and there's another man at another party who's m m Mr Crowder yes that's true who's very sort of limp and that was something else yes. that kept coming up the sort of men who'd been through Weak. the war having yes. they'd had the vitality drained out of mm -hmm. them I don't know if you've read any Storm Jameson. Yes, she, yes. She wrote a, tr a trilogy, the Mirror in Darkness trilogy. Mm. She wrote it in the 30s, but it's about mm. the 20s. She was a fabulous writer, mm. Storm Jameson. And uh, for a long time, I thought she was from the Deep South yes, in America uh, yes, with her I'm name, Storm Jameson. <laughs> she grew up in Whitby, actually. <laughs> and um, she named herself Storm Jameson. But she, she's a wonderful, wonderful writer and a lot of social realism. Mm. And not, not all the novels are successful, really, but they're... Um, they're just terribly heartfelt and informative. And um, she talks a lot about mainly middle-class men just having no reserves of energy left. I mean, God, what, how would they? Do you mm. know what I mean? How on earth would you? There was a lot of talk about nervous breakdowns after the war. There were, there were more cases of war neurosis among servicemen, apparently, after the war than during it. There were more you know, servicemen in, in mental hospitals after the war because people had just held themselves, if they'd got through it at all, the men had sort of held themselves together and then kind of collapsed um, yes, because because mr barber the, the 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 paying guest is a man full of vitality and mischief yes. and everything. we're automatically suspicious of him because we're invited to be <laughs> by the mother if, for precisely those reasons anyway there's so much to talk about i'm going to actually invite you to to do a little reading yes, now I'd so we can hear to. some of it and then open it up to people who have much better questions than i will in a million years so this is from <clears throat> this is the first time i've read from the book to an audience it's, it's exciting for me 
Um, so it's, I'm going to read a quite, sort of several pages. So um, this is from the first chapter. And at this point, Mr. and Mrs. Barber have moved in to the house on, in Camberwell, where Frances and her mother live. Frances has been rather appalled to see them bringing in their rather gaudy furniture and things like that, and then to be able to overhear them. I mean, it's kind of, they're having to share their home, you know, for the first time with lodgers. But she's found Mrs. Barber, um, who's a young a woman younger than her, uh, newly married kind of thing. She's found Mrs. Barber to be unexpectedly rather nice. And now it's the next day, the Monday morning, Mr. Barber's gone to work. Mrs. Barber um, is upstairs somewhere. And Frances's mother has gone out for a few hours, and Frances is taking the opportunity to do some housework in her mother's absence. Okay. She began the moment the front door closed, rolling up her sleeves, tying on an apron, covering her hair. She saw to her mother's bedroom first, then moved to the drawing room for sweeping, dusting, endless dusting, it felt like. Where on earth did the dust come from? It seemed to her that the house must produce it as flesh oozes sweat. She could beat and beat a rug or a cushion and still it would come. The drawing room had a china cabinet in it with glass doors tightly closed, but even the things inside grew dusty and had to be wiped. Just occasionally, she longed to take each fiddly porcelain cup and saucer and break it in two. Once, in sheer frustration, she'd snapped off the head of one of the apple-cheeked Staffordshire figures. It still sat a little crookedly from where she'd hurriedly glued it back on. But she didn't feel like that today. She worked briskly and efficiently, taking her brush and pan from the drawing room to the top of the stairs and making her way back down a step at a time. After that, she filled a bucket with water, fetched her kneeling mat, and began to wash the hall floor. Vinegar was all she used. Soap left streaks on the black tiles. The first wet rub was important for loosening the dirt, but it was the second bit that really counted, passing the rung cloth over the floor in one supple, unbroken movement. There. How pleasing each glossy tile was. The gloss would fade in about five minutes as the surface dried, but everything faded. The vital, point was to, the vital thing was to make the most of the moments of brightness. There was no point dwelling on the scuffs. She was young, fit, healthy. She had, what did she have? Little pleasures like this. Little successes in the kitchen. The cigarette at the end of the day. Cinema with her mother on a Wednesday. Regular trips into town. There were spells of restlessness now and again. But any life had those. There were longings. There were desires. But they were physical matters, mostly, and she had no last-century inhibitions about dealing with that sort of thing. It was amazing, in fact, she reflected, as she repositioned her mat and bucket and started on a new stretch of tile. It was astonishing how satisfactorily the business could be taken care of, even in the middle of the day, even with her mother in the house, <laughs> simply by slipping up to her bedroom for an odd few minutes, perhaps as a break between peeling parsnips or while waiting for dough to rise. <laughs> a movement at the turn of the staircase made her start. She'd forgotten all about her lodgers. Now she looked up through the banisters to see Mrs. Barber just coming uncertainly down. She felt herself blush, as if caught out, but Mrs. Barber was also blushing. Though it was well after ten, she was dressed in her nightgown still. She had some sort of satiny Japanese wrapper on top, a kimono, Francis supposed the thing was called, and her feet were bare inside Turkish slippers. She was carrying a towel and a sponge bag. As she greeted Frances, she tucked back a sleep flattened curl of hair and said shyly, I wondered if I might have a bath. Oh, said Frances, yes, but not if it's a trouble. I fell back asleep after Len went to work and Frances began to get to her feet. It's no trouble. I shall have to light the geezer for you, that's all. 
My mother and I don't usually light it during the, the day. I should have said last night, can you come across? You'll have to hop. Here's a dry bit, look. Mrs. Barber, however, had come further down the stairs and her colour was deepening. She was gazing in a mortified way at the duster on Francis's head, at her rolled up sleeves and flaming hands, at the housemaid's mat at her feet, still with the dents of her knees in it. Francis knew the look very well. She was bored to death with it, in fact, because she'd seen it many times before on the faces of neighbours, of tradesmen and of her mother's friends, all of whom had got themselves through the worst war in human history yet seemed unable for some reason to cope with the sight of a well-bred woman doing the work of a char. She said breezily, you remember my saying about us not having help? I really meant it, you see. The only thing I draw the line at is laundry. Most of that still gets, gets sent out. But everything else I take care of. The brights, the roughs, yes, I've all the lingo. Mrs. Barber had begun to smile at last. But as she looked at the stretch of floor that was still to be washed, she grew embarrassed in a different sort of way. I'm afraid Len and I must have made an awful mess yesterday, she said. I wasn't thinking. Oh, said Francis, these tiles get dirty all by themselves. Everything in this house does. Besides, you'd be amazed what a whiz I can be with a mop. Here, let me help. Mrs. Barber was on the bottom stair now and clearly doubtful about where to step to. After the slightest of hesitations, she took the hand that Francis offered, braced herself against her grip, then made the small spring forward to the unwashed side of the floor. Her kimono parted as she landed, exposing more of her nightdress and giving an alarming suggestion of the rounded, mobile, unsupported flesh inside. They went together through the kitchen and into the scullery. The bath was in there, beside the sink. It had a bleached wooden cover used by Francis as a draining board. With a practice movement, she lifted this free and set it against the wall. The tub was an ancient one that had been several times re-enameled, most recently by Frances herself, who was not quite sure of the result. The iron struck her today, especially, as having a faintly leprous appearance. The Vulcan geyser was also rather frightful, a greenish riveted cylinder on three bowed legs. It must have been the top of its manufacturer's range in about 1870, but now looked like the sort of vessel in which someone in a Jules Verne novel might make a trip to the moon. <laughs> It has a bit of a temperament, I'm afraid, she told Mrs. Barber. You have to turn this tap, but not this one. You might blow us sky high if you do. The flame goes here. She struck a match. Best to look the other way at this point. My father lost both his eyebrows doing this one. <laughs> there. The flame, with a whoosh, had found the gas. The cylinder began to tick and rattle. She frowned at it, her hands at her hips. What a beast it is. I am sorry, Mrs. Barber. I do wish this house was more up to date for you. But Mrs. Barber shook her head. Oh, please don't wish that. She tucked back another curl of hair. Frances noticed the piercing for her earring, a little dimple in the lobe. I like the house just as it is, she said. It's a house with a history, isn't it? Things, well, they oughtn't always to be modern. There'd be no character if they were. And there it was again, thought Frances. That niceness, that kindness, that touch of delicacy. She answered with a laugh. Well, as far as character goes, I fear this house might be rather too much of a good thing. But I'm glad you like it. I'm very glad. I like it too, though. I'm apt to forget that. Now, we oughtn't to let this geezer get hot without running some water, or there'll be no house left to like and no us to do the liking. Do you think you can manage? If the flame goes out, it sometimes does, I'm sorry to say. Give me a call. Mrs. Barber smiled, showing neat white teeth. 
I will. Thank you, Miss Ray. Frances left her to it and returned to her wet floor. The scullery door was closed behind her and quietly bolted. But the door between the kitchen and the passage was propped open, and as Frances retrieved her cloth, she could hear very clearly Mrs Barber's preparations for her bath, the rattle of the chain against the tub, followed by the splutter and gush of the water. The gushing, it seemed to her, went on for a long time. She'd told a fib about her and her mother's use of the geezer. It was too expensive to light often. They drew their hot water from the boiler in the old-fashioned stove. They bathed at most once a week, frequently taking turns with the same bath water. If Mrs Barber were to want baths like this on a daily basis, their gas bill might double. But at last the flow was cut off. There came the splash of water and the rub of heels as Mrs Barber stepped into the tub, followed by a more substantial liquid thwack as she lowered herself down. After that, there was a silence, broken only by the occasional echoey clink of drips from the tap. Like the parted kimono, the sounds were unsettling. The silence was most unsettling of all. Sitting at her bureau a short time before, Frances had been picturing her lodgers in purely mercenary terms as something like two great waddling shillings. But this, she thought, shuffling backward over the tiles, this was what it really meant to have lodgers, this odd, unintimate proximity, this rather peeled-back moment where the only thing between herself and a naked Mrs Barber was a few feet of kitchen and a thin scullery door. An image sprang into her head, that round flesh crimsoning in the heat. She adjusted her pose on the mat, took hold of her cloth, and rubbed hard at the floor. <laughs> I rest my case, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> You'll never peel a parsnip again and not think of that. Um, now, let's take some questions. Do we have roving mics so we can get to you to hear you? Yes, we do. So if you mind putting your hand up and I'll point to you and just wait until the microphone comes to you. Who'd like to put the first question to Sarah? Don't be shy. Good heavens. Somebody, anybody, or I'll be talking all night. <laughs> I was at an event with Jane Smiley once and she said, if no, <laughs> she said, if no one asks a question, I'm going to point to somebody. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> well, while they compose themselves, can I ask something about a previous book then? The Little Stranger. Um, I, I've been desperate to ask you this. Unre unreliable narrator? <laughs> or did it happen? You have to tell me or we just have to make up our own minds? <laughs> Best I've, ghost I've been, story I've ever read. Oh, thank you. I've been asked this a lot. Of all my books, this is the one that's provoked the most sort of well, puzzlement, really, from some readers, and certainly uh, you know, curiosity about what exactly I had in mind, because it's a very, it's a ghost story, but it's a very, um, well, it's, I see, I don't think it's open-ended at all. I think it's very clear what's been going on, but I, I left it open-ended enough so that people might make up their own minds. Was it him? <laughs> <laughs> Was he doing it all? <laughs> say, come on. I mean, it's, there's a big hint at the end. Yes. Um, <laughs> he is, I did see him as an increasingly unreliable narrator, but not in the sense that he's deliberately misleading us. I think that he, he was, it was a very uh, interesting novel to write because he had to be a technically very sort of even, rather boring voice actually, but I had to suggest that there were things going on under the surface. So I think there are things going on under his surface that even he is not really privy to. And so perhaps sometimes those things kind of erupt. 
It was it was terrifying. <laughs> it was absolutely terrifying. But come on, thank you, lady here. Just two, two seconds. Don't be a, a pussy Edinburgh audience. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask a question about research. I say this is someone who's, in my, who's completing a master's in screenwriting at the moment, and I'm scared of writing period because of the amount of research that I'm going to mm. have to do. And I was wondering whether you have like a particular approach, a strategy where you like start in one place and end in another, or do you research as you're writing? Or um, I, I do. I start with a period of solid research um, because obviously at that point I just don't know what. I don't know enough about the period to know what sort of stories will suit it, you know, which sort of stories will feel right for it. So I have to find that out. I have to do enough, I have to do enough research um, that I can see what the preoccupations of the time were, what the issues of the time were, and that I can, you know, characters in the story begin to kind of emerge from the, from the research for me. And then really, I, want, you know, yeah, I have to get to a point where, obviously, I don't know... Um, everything there is to know about the period, nobody ever could. But I have to get to a point where I know enough about the period that I can make educated guesses about the bits I don't know. So that, that means I can start writing. So I don't at that point... I mean, for a long time with this novel, with Francis and Lillian, say Lillian is Mrs Barber, by the way, I probably should have explained that, um, I didn't know what they were wearing. At the, you know, I didn't really know what, what clothes they'd be wearing at the start. But I could still write a scene, because the, you know, the nub of the scene was much more about what was going on for them. Um, but then I would continue to research as I, as I wrote. I mean, for me, I re I'll research to the very last day, actually, um, of writing. And that can be, that can be just watching a, watching a movie, watching a Lillian Gish film. So, so do you go back into be. the text then and, and, and adjust I it? I do. It sounds right. really... Um, mm. I, I don't know what the word is. It sounds a bit hot, sort of um, not what you might think. But yes, I'll definitely go back. If, I, if, on, you know, if in the fourth year of writing a novel... I'll come across a reference to a sort of dress that actually I'll think, oh, that would be good for Francis in the very first scene. I'll go back and change it. You know what I mean? Or, because actually what, what, what happens is that my research becomes much more focused and targeted because I realise what I need to know as, I, as I'm writing it. I always think you need to do the research almost twice. You have to do, do it first to get a feel for the period. And then once your book begins to emerge... You have to do it again because you know what you're looking for that time. You know. Yes, that's rather gorgeous, um, like doing a watercolour. And so, mm. and in a way, also it means that the research doesn't end up dictating the plots because it's not going to get in the way. Yes, yes, hopefully. Um, As it does with a lot of writers. Yeah, I mean, I remember doing an event years ago with Jill Payton Walsh, mm. a great writer, and um, talking about this issue. And she said, you know, that. Um, the, the details should feel incidental to, to the, to the mm. story, which is absolutely right, because that's how details feel in, this li in, in life. I mean, mm. as I'm looking around, you know, my eyes being caught by various sorts of clothing or hairstyles or glasses, mm. you know what I mean? And they're, they're kind of here in this experience, but they're not at the front of my mind. And so I sort of want my, that to be the experience for my characters as well. I want to know what the background is for my characters, even if I don't always refer to it. And, of course, there are always some details that you just love so much you have to... <laughs> You have to work in, and they always they always stick out for me. They never look quite right to me, and sometimes I'll just take them out again. Sometimes I'll leave them because I'm very fond of them. Oh, tell us! Oh, I can't they, think of an example. Tell us one that you've left in. Well, sometimes I mean, with Fingersmith, I remember. Oh no, with actually with Tipping the Velvet, I got to the point of proof stage, and I'd read a reference to a bum shaver jacket in the in the Victorian period, and I realised I thought it was such a modern word, a bum shaver jacket. I thought, oh, I've got to put that in. So I kind of you know changed, added it to the proof. So things like that, which. It's not quite right because there should be a bit. I always think it should be a bit more organic. But if you're careful, you can kind of. So don't fear research. Yeah. Anybody else? 
Yes, uh, lady here with the glasses first, just there, you can pass it along. Thank you. I wondered, since you've spent such a lot of time researching the 1920s, if you intend to write your next novel in the same period. Um, I have thought about that quite a lot. I think I, I imagined that I would, actually, when I was working on The Paying Guests. That's what I did with the last two books. You know, I'd written, I'd written that book, The Night Watch, set mainly during the war, just after. And it wasn't that... <laughs> It wasn't, as, it wasn't as blunt as I ha I'd done all the, all the research, so I wanted to kind of, you know, get more out of it. It was more with that, with those two books, that there was, there was stuff I hadn't explored, really around class, say, that I, that I felt I wanted to explore and in, in have another go at the 40s. And I sort of imagined I might feel the same with the 20s. And I'm not sure now. I'm not sure. Mm. Um, I've thought about nudging into the 30s. <laughs> and so using this as a sort of, you know, as, as a kind of background and sort of thinking about what changes when you move into the 30s, because um, there are significant changes, I think. Um, but I don't, I don't really know yet. There is, a, see, there's a problem. There's a, I, I sometimes worry that um, I'll end up pastiching myself. You know what I mean? If I, if I, yeah, that I'll, my characters will, will, all, will all be talking in the same way in the next book. As that, you know what I mean? That. Sometimes you need something to give you a little um, kick into, into new territory, actually. Which, um, which is quite good. Just before I, I yeah, pass the microphone to this next thing, that actually is something I meant to ask you earlier as well. Are you afraid of modernity? Are you afraid of no. the present? No, have you ever been tempted to write a book of, of now? Um, I wasn't for a long time. I, I just thought it's not for me, you know. Um, it was in my interest in the past, well, and in historical fiction that got me writing in the first place, and that always seemed to be my way in. And each book has really grown out of the one before it, very naturally. One thing has led to another. And so far, nothing has led me into the present. But uh, we, we can do a sort of mathematical calculation when you catch <laughs> up with yourself. So you have to be 96. Um, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> then I could write about 2014 and it would be a sort of period piece. Um, when, I, when I was writing The Little Stranger, which, which is a sort of ghost story, I began to think it would be quite nice to write a, a contemporary ghost story. Um, so that it may be that I can get into, the, get into the contemporary world sort of like that, you know, sort of sidle in, sidle in. But I mean, I don't, you know, I, I, historians never get asked. You know, people don't challenge historians and say, when are you going to kind of stop writing about 17th century, for goodness sake? Write about 21st Come century. Come on, Hillary Mantel. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know why historical novelists sort of people, you know. Um, but it's, it might be that one day it'll feel like a, the right thing to do. As a, as a sort of, or again, the thing about new territory, it might be that that's the time I want to try something a bit, bit new. This is not my heart, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about the parsnips again. <laughs> Thanks for that. That was kind of my question. Oh, no. <laughs> but, um, all right, then. So, you're so. There's. What, how, it's clearly themes that you, that you engage with. And, okay, not modernity, but what about something completely off the way, like sci fi and stuff, where you actually. Or do you need to be rooted in the, the historical sort of facts and minutiae of the time? Or could you take these amazing, <laughs> wonderful characters that you create and just completely invent something? Sci-fi, I think, needs... <laughs> I think sci-fi and speculative fiction needs a certain kind of brain, and I, and I just haven't got it. You need to be a, no, a writer of ideas, actually, in a way that I don't think I am. You know, but you're, but you're got, about to do a theatre thing on oh, the, Jack Fro the uh, horror thing with Jack Frost and the... Uh, that's thing. true. So you are. So she is. Well... <laughs> 
<laughs> that's kind of a period piece as well. I'm doing, I'm doing a co-writing a play with a friend of mine, Christopher Green, which is, has been huge fun, actually, to write for the theatre. Um, but it's about sort of 20s. But it's, it's a, still horror. It's spooky. Spooky, it's yeah. Spooky. yeah. I'm not going to say it's horror, but it's spooky. Yeah, that's true. And I wish you wouldn't say speculative fiction, just standing up for science fiction. Oh. Because Margaret Atwood did that. She's like, she's a speculative fiction writer because she thinks the word science oh. fiction is dirty. So don't. I it's science fiction. Okay. Science fiction. There's nothing well, wrong with it. But I'm thinking of a writer like, say, Kelly Link, who writes mm. wonderful it's, short stories. Yes, would you I'm call that sci-fi? Yes, I would, yes. To me, it's more like alternative world. Well, no, that, well, that is science fiction. It's like, you know, that's why, it's why we never win Booker Prizes. Anyway. Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, yes, yes, the gentleman down here. Hang on, there's the microphone going. <laughs> I have no agenda there at all. Good evening. I wonder whether you could tell us something about your uh, exposure to uh, TV adaptations and what parts you played in it in the sense of was it taken out of your hands, the productions, or did you have a very hands-on experience with it? I had a very hands-off experience with all the adaptations, which was exactly what I wanted. Because, um, of course, by the time a book of mine is being adapted, I'm, I'm usually several books ahead, so I never, it never feels kind of natural to go back. Um, I've never... You, you need very special skills to, to adapt a book, and I don't, I don't think I've got them especially. And also, I, I think it's hard to adapt your own book because, you know, I put all that labour into writing 500 words and screenplays. If you've ever seen them, they're like a kind of 100 very, very spare pages. They just capture the nub of the scene, and you'd have to be utterly ruthless, I think, with your, with your own work to do that. So I've been much happier to hand it over to other people. And then, really, to just enjoy watching the process. It's a fascinating experience because it's a real translation. It is an, a complete translation um, from that to something on the screen. You know, they have to make decisions about what can stay, what can go, uh, what has to go, rather. Um, you know, which characters they kind of lose, which black characters. It's, it's, I find it very, very interesting. And on the whole, I've had very... I've been very um, happy with the adaptations. And I think they've all had strengths and weaknesses, different strengths and different weaknesses. But on the whole, I've, I've felt very pleased with them. And What's your favourite? My favourite, I think, is Fingersmith, actually. Um, it's very leisurely, which is always a great treat for a writer because nobody wants to see their, their book squashed, which was actually my kind of experience with The Night Watch, where they sort of compressed it rather. Um, but, the, but Fingersmith was, it was three hour-long episodes, and it was very faithful to the book, incredibly faithful to the book, actually. It used a lot of my dialogue, which, is, again, is always a treat for a writer. Um, the, the two main actresses, Elaine Cassidy and Sally Hawkins, were great. They had a lovely chemistry. It was just a re I really enjoyed that. But the others have all had, you know, been, been fun and, and exciting for me. And the great thing for an author about an adaptation is it gives a new life to a book that's maybe been out for a few years. It brings new readers to your work and a, and a nice check, of course, at the end, which is <laughs> not unwelcome. So. I've had some, I'm, sorry, I was just going to say, there are plans to do a theatre adaptation of Fingersmith in America at the moment, which that's uh, premiering in February, I think, in, at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which is apparently quite a big, a big uh, uh, you know, stage festival. So that's, I've seen the, the, the script, it's wonderful, so that's going to be fun to see. Do you get a chance to choose the, the screenwriter? No? 
Uh, no. no. It's no. fine. It's not my world. You no, know. no, no, it's, it's less pricey. It's a completely different skill. Mm. Yes, I'll be right back. Um, I wondered, you talked, I can't see. about Sorry, research. Well. You talked about research, which is often... There, there. We've... <laughs> um, ...time-consuming. Um, I wonder what time pressures you feel when you're writing. I mean, particularly with the explosion of e-publishing, where it seems to be the stress is on get it out there as quickly as you can, as many books up there as quickly as you can. Um, do you feel those kind of pressures or do you feel you're able to give whatever time you feel a book needs to develop it and mm. polish it and do whatever to it? I've never been put under any pressure by um, my agent or my, my publisher. They've been wonderful in just letting me get on with it. Um, I sort of, you know, I'm, I'm pretty disciplined with a book and once I start, I just kind of chip away at it. This book was a, was a long writing process and I, th I think as a writer you have a sense of yeah, a book on the whole just will have to take as long as it takes. You know, you can't hurry it. It just Sometimes you have to go wrong in order to go right, if you know what I mean. And with this book, I did sort of take, take some wrong turnings. It took about four, four and a bit years to write this book. Um, and for the first two years, I struggled to get the tone right. Um, I, wasn't, I hadn't committed to it being a proper love story, actually. I think that was part of the problem. I, I was worried, oh, it's just a romance. I thought it's just going to be, it's just sort of too small. I couldn't... And then I realised that their, Francis and Lillian's relationship was really at the heart of the book. I realised that through giving it to a couple of readers, including my agent, and talking it through. Um, and then I, was, then I was kind of on track. But I think I just had to go through those first couple of years in order to, to find the right path, really. But I think... So this is a long-winded way of answering your question. I think, um, you know, I had a sense that I was taking a bit too long. Um, but that couldn't be helped, you know, I just had to, I couldn't speed that process up. It just had to be what it was. And there's a point with the book, for a long time with the book, the thought of exposing it to the world is just awful. It's just, feel, you feel really squeamish about it. And then you get to a point where you're a bit more confident with it and suddenly you want it to have readers. You know, you want, you want it to come to life because it's like, the, that's, what it's, that's what it's all about. Um, so it, it's, it's, and... You, you feel that shift, you know, you feel that, that, that happen. It's like, oh, God, it's like the quickening of a baby. I'm Not that I have I've ever had a baby, but it's something like that. It's something like it kind of suddenly is alive. Um, and that's, that's a very nice moment. And after that, you are kind of... But that's an, excite, that's an excitement. It's not a pressure, you know. I've been, I've been incredibly lucky, I think, that I've just been able to write the books I want to write at the pace that I have to write them or need to write them. Pragmatically, I mean, uh, to a lot of people who are not writers, think, four years? Four years? What, what does that actually mean? I mean, what's your... I know this is a dull question, but I'm just writing it as, another, as an undisciplined writer who's a shambles. Um, so, yeah, I'm asking for a friend here, obviously. Um, LAUGHTER <laughs> What's your day like? I mean, I mean, do you, do you have a word count? I mean, do, I mean, I can't says, believe it takes me four years to write a book because it, I do write every day. You know, I think in the end it's just like the monkeys and the typewriters. You know, it's just I hit the key so many times, so many millions of times that in the end. It do, you, makes do, a you book. Have a, do you have a working day? Is, I have is, a working between, day. You know, what, what, what hours between? Kind of eight thirty to. See, it's very. It varies depending on the phase of the book. I mean, with this book, I spent a very intense last 18 months say where I was working quite long days and a long day for me would be sort of 8.30 till 5 or 6 you know but if in the earlier part when I'm just writing just building building the book up you know it's maybe sort of 8.39 till till 4 maybe and then I might read do some research then or I might watch a film or something that's 
So it's, it's a working day, Monday to Friday at that point. At the end, in the end, the last few months, I kind of gave up weekends, and it was mad, really. I just worked all the time. It was a bit too much. Um, but I like that Monday to Friday. I, I aim to write 1,000 words a day if I'm just doing it in the early stages. It's not much. It's about two pages, and sometimes that's easy. Sometimes it's not easy, but I'll keep going, because mm. that's, my, that's, my, that's like touching wood for me. You know, If I got that 1,000 words done, then I know that over the course of a working week, I'll have 5,000 words, and over two months, I'll have... I mean, over a month, I'll 20, you know, yeah. whatever. 20,000. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have a maths degree. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> but, um, but most of my work is, re is rewriting. Yeah. I, re I did a, tons of rewriting. on. The, I ended up with a, with a... I've still got it. I can't bear to throw it away, actually. I've got a pile of discarded drafts that's... It's, it's double-sided, and it's 17 inches high, so it's 34 <laughs> inches of drafts. And since the manuscript was an inch thick in the end... Kind of means I wrote the book 34 times. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> but also you printed it out because most of these are just electronic. It oh, just I have exists. To see it on the paper. You have to do hold not. it. I have to see it on the paper with a pen, and that's a wonderful mm. moment. The first time I do that, the first time I print it up, sit down with a red pen, and make my little <laughs> annotations. That's a very exciting moment, and that makes me always remember that yes, it is about the rewriting. It's not. It's not. The, it's not the getting the words on the page. It's it's about them making them right. This is always the worst. I, answer that any you know successful writer gives to sort of a workshop is just discipline it's a, you know it's yeah. as simple as that if you write it it Patience. will be written Patience. well no it's, it's just hard work isn't it because if you have described writing in days and you don't feel oh, that, you, yes. that what you've done is worthwhile but it's still worthwhile having written it to know that it's not working isn't it yes i said for the friend <laughs> um, <laughs> um we'll be, i think we have time just to squeeze in one last question the lady down here thanks hang on Hiya. Um, along with your um, really great sense of period in your books, there's a really fantastic sense of place, and in particular, of course, London. Um, I wondered how important is London as a, as a character for you as a writer, and also if you can imagine capturing you know, somewhere else uh, and that being as important in a novel, maybe somewhere a wee bit further north <laughs> <laughs> in, in future writing. Good pitch. <laughs> well, Edinburgh is one of those very, very inspiring cities. I was thinking about Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde, mm. as I often do, actually, because it's one of my favourite books. I was thinking about it today because like, it's set in London, but mm. I always picture Edinburgh when I read it. It doesn't seem like London somehow. Um, and, you know, I mean, I do, I do love London. I love it with all the, the passion of an incomer, really, because obviously I was born in Wales in a very small town, in quite a, a, mod, well, in a very modern house. I mean, I was born in a council house, and then we lived in a 70s bungalow, and I always had this hankering for sort of older things. And what I love about London is the, the age of it, like Edinburgh, and what you get particularly in London is layers and layers of history, you know. So, I mean, God, there are bits... There's a walk that Frances does through... She goes over Vauxhall Bridge and then through Westminster, and it's a walk that I often do myself. And there's a, you know, there's a sort of 18th-century church here and some sort of you know, late 18th-century terraces next to it. And then one of them's got a stenciled thing, very, very faint stencil, stencil thing saying um, air raid shelter this way. You know, it's just been left over from the Second World War. And that's something I love about city life, that you get these, these layers and layers, this accretion of history, and it's very inspiring I find I just I mean nothing inspires me like walking walking around London and just sort of it's full of stories um, and overheard bits of conversation but that's true of, of lots of cities so I'm sure Edinburgh is also inspiring but I've no um, Glasgow, <coughs> oh, and, and Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> sorry 
<laughs> I did move to Warwickshire for the, for the uh, little stranger, which was exciting. Yes, yes. And there was an incredible sense of place there as well. Actually, it was absolutely wonderful. Um, we're, we're almost out of time. Um, so is there any one, one last question? Or I'm, or I'm going to ask it? No. That's the, that's the question I asked you. It's about the concealment of art. How come? And I keep looking at every sentence you've ever written and go, how come something so simple and something so perfect wants you to read to the end? And there's nothing, there's nothing special about it. I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean, there's, there's, there's no trick to it. It's the utter simplicity and beauty of the prose that doesn't get in the way of anything else. Please tell me, please tell me that it doesn't start out that way, that you have to slash and burn before you get to it. Yes? Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, you should see some of my early drafts. Oh, my God. If they, I mean, you know, it's like if this was a tapestry, the back would be like kind of tangle, a tangle, a tangle mess, a horrid mess. But you just have to keep going. I mean, God, I can look at it now. I mean, you talk about the sentences. I could look at any page and find a sentence that I'm not happy with and that I wish I'd done differently and just seems incredibly cheesy and awful. Oh, it just um, isn't. It just isn't. It's, it's just absolutely perfection. In fact, that's, I think, where we're going to have to leave it because, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't buy this and read this, you're mad. It is <laughs> gripping from the first word to the last. And what an honour for all of us to have been in the company and to have listened to the amazing Sarah Waters. Just to remind you, if you just let Sarah get through first so she can set herself up on the groaning table of this wonderful book, thank you very much. <laughs> you come through here so you can get them that way. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.